I'm Anna Edmonds, and I teach philosophy, uh, mainly reasoning and ethics at the University of Michigan. I'm actually currently being supported by uh, an open fill grant to work on some new course developments and a textbook for a kind of new approach to teaching undergraduates uh, moral decision making. So if you have any ideas about that, please, I would be delighted to be in touch with you afterwards. So at uh, EAG London last fall, I gave a workshop that was a primer on what I take to be one of the most central components of rationality, uh, learning how to update on new evidence. And when the organizers got in touch with me to talk to me about giving a talk here, they most di diplomatically said, yeah, so is there a way that we could talk about something that would be even more diplomatic, they were, uh, applicable to the kinds of decisions that young EAers, people who might happen upon 80,000 hours for the first time, uh, the kinds of uh, improvements in rationality that we should keep in mind. So in the interest of making some of these uh, reasoning and decision-making strategies a little bit more concrete, I'm going to be focusing on the reasoning task of thinking about career choice. And I know, I've talked to a few of you one-on-one, -on -one. I know that there's a lot of us who are thinking really actively right now about the kind of career we're going to want to have, but I also think it's the kind of question that I want us all to be considering really all the time, the rest of our lives. So even if we're at a point right now we, where we are not naturally thinking of ourselves as uh, thinking about possibly uh, new jobs, new roles, new career opportunities, I think it's a good one to always be thinking about. And also we're going to notice that a lot of the observations and strategies we're going to think about will be just as helpfully uh, applied to other significant deliberation or choice contexts. So I want to start by reminding ourselves of the kind of creature we are. We're ones who have evolved with cognitive systems that have sophisticated automatic processing, system one, processing that's functioning effortlessly beneath the level of conscious awareness via usually quick associations, shortcuts. And we also have the capacity for a much more resource-intensive, deliberative, manual kind of reasoning. This is the kind that we can focus all of our attention on, and when we're doing that, we're generally not multitasking. So when we think about significant reasoning tasks, tasks like deciding what field to pursue, where we should work, what constitutes high impact, this feels to us like a kind of quintessential system two deliberative manual reasoning task. But of course, there are all sorts of ways in which uh, automatic processes are operating below the surface and they're influencing our decision-making in really powerful ways. So, of course, system one is great at some stuff, at telling, helping us tell right away if someone's angry at us or getting us to jump out of the way of a stray ball. But it's not so great at complicated questions that requ require assimilating uh, different components of information. And so our central aim is going to be to uncover what our default tendencies are. And then we want to be able to reflect on what these typical proclivities are in hopes that we can come to feel them, to notice them more easily. And of course, ultimately, we want to work to override them when we have reason to think that they're just not helping us succeed, 
for the aims that we've set for ourselves. So let me say a little bit about how I think we end up interacting with this kind of material. I'll be imploring you uh, at a number of points, if you haven't already, to really make your way through the incredible resource that is 80,000 hours. Um, but one thing that you might find, I've found it at various points when I am immersed in this um, uh, incredibly thorough, rich website, you might find it uh, kind of overwhelming to sit down and begin the, the maybe many months long process of making this kind of giant weighty decision. So at some points, you will actually be working to make a kind of more rational, careful, deliberate system two decision. Um, but what ends up, I think, being just as helpful is just having been exposed to this stuff, having had the chance to run your eyeballs over it, hear the stuff, maybe hear it a couple of times, just so that it sort of starts to seep in and it, it becomes kind of integrated with your values such that no matter what kinds of decisions you're making at various points, it's going to really permeate what you start to notice, what kinds of opportunities seem more um, plausible as ones that really should be ones that you should uh, try to go after, just the kinds of things that uh, you notice. So, um, you know, sometimes tools to actually sit down and make a decision, but a lot of times the stuff that's going to kind of be informing your system ones so that they're operating a little bit differently behind the scenes. All right, so here's the warm-up task that I want you guys to do. I want you to, by yourself, just try to answer this question. Ask yourself, how could I, right now, increase my current impact? Think about some way you could, I don't know, learn a skill, extend your current reach. Think about a new role you could apply for. How, how would you begin enacting that process? All right, I want you to stop. I'm a philosopher, so I can't tell you what to do about any of the stuff that actually matters. Go scour the bountiful resources of 80,000 hours. Maybe you should apply for career advising. If 80,000 hours had been born a little bit earlier, I probably wouldn't have ended up in academic philosophy. But now I'm trying to achieve higher impact by thinking really hard about how to make other people achieve higher impact. Consummate philosopher. A lot of thinking about doing and not a whole lot of doing. I'm sort of kidding. Some philosophers engage in plenty of doing. Okay, so what I really wanted you to do is just to notice the feelings that you had when I made you answer that question. So be honest. Uh, raise your hand if those things, you felt a little touch of something that felt like, ooh, I don't really like to answer this question. Uh, feels kind of bad, feels kind of stressful, wish I were not asking this question to myself right now. So I want us to think about those feelings. Uh, it, sh it definitely does make me feel stressed out. Uh, it involves, of course, getting ourselves to take risks. Feels like dealing with a lot of uncertainty. We're creatures who tend to deal very badly with uncertainty in general. It can make salient to us ways in which we might fail. Might make salient to us ways in which we conceive of ourselves as already failing. 
Um, when we are thinking of applying for jobs, it sets us up to judge ourselves uh, comparatively. And of course, the relevant comparison class when we're thinking about you know, whether we would be the one selected for a role is going to be the very top sector of the applicant pool. So we're thinking about ways we could be more productive, ways uh, we, we could have, we could have already had higher impact. And this just ends up feeling like, like a current failure to maximize. It should not feel this way. This kind of mindset, uh, the kinds of feelings that we're likely to have when we address these questions to begin with, are not the kinds of feelings that we should be having. The fact that you guys are here at this conference thinking about uh, how to make better decisions, how to lead good lives, is incredible. Changing your course to have more impact than you would have had otherwise is incredible. Uh, there's this funny dynamic, I think, at the root of EA, this kind of maximization thread. So on the one hand, it's, it's a really good thought, and it's true that if we set out to do good, and there are ways that if only we had thought about it a little more, a little better, we could have done better, we should learn how to try and do those things. But this doesn't mean that we should feel bad if we haven't managed to be the ideally maximally productive versions of ourselves, or you know, that we should feel bad because maybe there is a way we could have been even better. It's kind of amazing that each one of you are here getting to think together uh, about these things, and I think it should feel joyful that we get to do it. So the more we change our attitudes about what it means to think about these questions, to try for new roles, to try innovating, the more we think about them as exciting opportunities, I think the less we're going to end up defaulting to under-justified options or falling prey to the pitfalls we're going to talk about just because the process of doing this feels shitty. So in general, when we're thinking about reasoning, uh, it's helpful to make a distinction between some different stages. Mm. When we're reasoning about what to believe, say, you know, trying to figure out the correct explanation for a particular observation, first we're going to think about what the possible explanations are, and a lot of times we fail to even do this. After we come up with possible explanations, we're going to set out to evaluate uh, what those possibilities are, and then we want to get ourselves to actually update on that uh, information, what we think um, uh, the best explanation is. So decision-making, of course, um, is, is going to be really similar here. We're going to think about possibilities for what we can do, and we want to really give a fair shake to this actual search, um, to, to coming up with uh, the possibilities that should be on the table for consideration, and then only then go on to ask ourselves which of these possibilities that we've considered would be best. So we're going to separate this into a search stage and an evaluation stage. All right, so here's the first exercise that I want you to do. Just take a minute or two to uh, answer exercise one. So it's getting you to think about possible or alternative career paths that seem to be good fits with your aptitude, skill set, interests. And then go on and answer A and B. For B, note that it's uh, telling you to write down how confident you are that it's your best path. So you can list confidence in terms of a percentage, in terms of a decimal. You'd say, I'm 45% confident that this choice, or I am 0.6 confident 
All right, so unsurprisingly, I think I've seen about half of your faces uh, looking up. Trick, there are two different versions of the handout. And one of them got you to list three, and you other poor suckers who aren't finished had to list six. So thinking about what your confidence distributions were like for part B, how you sort of arranged your confidence levels about each of the options that you asked about. Anybody want to take a stab at guessing um, the differences that we might observe if we looked at all of this data in terms of what the confidence distributions might look like for the people who had three versus the people who had six? Beautiful. All right, she says the people who had to list six options probably had lower confidence. Yeah, so you know what we're expecting to see probably, and sometimes I'll run this kind of uh, question in my rationality classes, just asking about something like, you know, what caused, uh, what do you think caused uh, this described home fire? How confident are you that you think it was due to that? And when I get people to list a lot more possibilities, of course, what they're actually doing, they're taking 100% of that probability space and they're allocating it over more options, thereby reducing the likelihood that each one of those options, assuming they're mutually exclusive, um, they're all going to take up some of that probability space. And so, you know, whatever it was that came to mind first as the likeliest explanation, well, when you see that there are all of these other things that could also be explanations, well, they're going to have to take up some of that space too, so there's going to be less. And the exact same thing is going to happen here. So most likely, um, when we are considering possibilities like this, there's going to be something like a candidate explanation um, that's, uh, that we're likelier to bump into, we're likelier to hear about, we're likelier to feel good about, you know, based on the fact that we have, um, say, thought about it for a long time uh, as the kind of thing that we would like uh, to do. And this is going to involve some confirmation bias because we can think about um, these ideas as kind of having taken root in our heads, they're sort of, you can think of them as hypotheses about what your best life might look like, what your most pro pro productive job might be. And you, know, you can see that if you're not really forcing yourself to consider a lot of other options, you're going to end up with too much uh, likelihood weighted on that one or those few uh, candidate possibilities that you have uh, considered. So actually forcing ourselves to come up with a list, that's going to help shake free uh, this grip of uh, confirmation bias and help us uh, stop getting stuck on the initial preferred possibilities that we get frozen on. All right, so we're forcing ourselves to consider more possibilities. How do we know when we've searched hard enough? when we're done searching for possibilities and should move on to evaluating those possibilities? Interesting question, thank you for asking. It's certainly not the case that in general the more search, the merrier. And in fact, there's some uh, interesting research, maybe you should uh, check out Schwartz et al, uh, maximizing versus satisficing 
Uh, some good reasons to think that maximizers are not in general doing better than satisficers, uh, ones who uh, have not the highest standards and look not the most uh, exhaustively long in their searches. Uh, so maybe you know, it's not going to pay off to be a maximizer when you're making your choice about what to watch on Netflix. But the general answer to how long we should search is that we should be matching our search effort to the importance of the question. Uh, so probably most of us have already recognized that uh, what we're going to choose to do with our careers is amongst the most important choices that we're ever going to make. Um, and I don't think that it should strike us as all that crazy to allocate something like 2% of our total career time to figuring out a career choice. But notice that 2% would be about 1,600 hours. And that feels massively different than what the average bear would spend looking and even the average EA. So if there were a time to maximize, I think this would probably be it. And you can also note that making a very informed, high effort maximizing choice in you know, thinking about what area you should pursue, it doesn't mean that you need to approach your entire career that way. It makes a lot of sense to be satisficy uh, in plenty of domains and maximizing in some. All right, so we've put in the effort coming up with a healthy array of options to consider. And now we're going to think about evaluating those options. So you can note that uh, you know, we're going to be sort of collecting together a whole bucket of cognitive pitfalls. And note that I'm going to be going through these quickly. So um, I've actually written out my own. They might differ a little bit from uh, other fields' sources, even from my own field's sources. But I've written up the relevance, um, and that's on your handout. So check in on those if you feel like you're not tracking the way I'm using them. Um, but note that each time I think about these, they're usually really, really uh, interlocked. They're going to be cropping up all over the place and uh, in conjunction with each other. And you're going to notice that a lot of what I'm talking about in the evaluation stage isn't even uh, distinct to just the evaluation stage. It's stuff that um, you know, would affect which possibilities um, we even are able to come up with. So we're thinking back to what happens when we f first start generating possible paths. And we're unlikely to generate enough, probably getting stuck on the more common, accessible, frequently encountered suggestions. But the problem is worse than that. Because what's going to be uh, likely is that when we're evaluating those options, what we do is we introspect you know, to see how we feel about those options. And here's what we're very likely to experience. Some problems, some roles, they're going to jump out to us, not just jump out to us, they're going to jump out to us as intuitively better options than others. But I think it's worth taking a second to try to diagnose what that intuitive betterness amounts to. So a well-confirmed psychological phenomenon is that we do feel better about things that are more familiar to us. It's how advertising works. So we think that we're asking questions about you know, what has engaged us, what is, in fact, a compelling problem, what seems like it would be more successful, what's an important issue. Um, but, of course, it's going to be the case that more familiar problems, roles, they're really going to have the edge here. 
And then there's another problem with the way that familiarity interacts with our judgment of the options. So how much, um, how much impact we end up having is going to, uh, in really kind of large part, um, be determined by uh, whether or not it's a domain in which it's um, neglected to some extent. So we're looking at this relationship um, between whether a problem is really saturated with a lot of other people working on it um, uh, versus whether uh, there's actually opportunity to go in and make, uh, really collect some low-hanging fruit and make, make a really big impact. And so we're worried about the, the fact that, you know, if something is, is feeling really familiar and getting that positive edge that way, um, it's probably going to be uh, an indication that um, it's more saturated. And the other thing we want to um, keep an eye on is that, you know, when we are introspectively gauging how good we feel about something, we tend to take that as this really solid and enduring indication of how good it would be for somebody with stable character personality uh, cognitive features like us to be engaged with that. But the empirical literature is just really, really clear here about how much we overestimate uh, how likely we are to stay stable in those preferences. So um, we should predict that our interests will change a lot, that what feels important to us, what we could uh, be compelled by, that those kinds of things uh, will really change. So we're reminding ourselves that, you know, the amount of impact that uh, we're, we're going to have really does have to do with this kind of counterfactual thing. So if I didn't do this thing, um, you know, what would happen? And of course, you know, when we're thinking about uh, med schools, competitive uh, PhD uh, programs, you know, prestigious law schools or something, if, if we don't do that thing, of course, there's going to be someone else um, waiting in the wings that'll pop in and probably end up doing something very similar. So unless you have a really, you know, well-defined route that you're really excited and confident about that requires that kind of thing, um, you know, we want to not be um, taken in by our uh, current comfortable, excited feelings uh, uh, about that kind of uh, familiar route. All right, so we're going to add some relevant cognitive pitfalls to our list. Um, but what we're going to notice soon is that all of the next ones that we're going to be looking at can actually be grouped under a more general heading. And it's going to be something like a failure to gauge expected value. And generally, it's a, fa a failure to even gauge expected value at all. Sometimes it will be more fine-grained. Sometimes it will be that we're not gauging it very well. But a lot of the times, we're just not really gauging at all. So what's happening is just system one is going with a kind of feel about what would be best. And what we really need to do is get system two on the scene to start doing some of the hard, dirty work. So raise your hand if you've found yourself sunk costing before about anything. <laughs> all of us, yes, me all the time. Uh, yeah, you end up dragging yourself to the concert that you bought tickets for, and you really don't even feel like going anymore. Um, but of course, far more pernicious modes of sunk costing 
we find it really hard to change majors. Impossible to leave your, you're laughing, I'll bet, for the same reason that I'm laughing inside. Those little babies who, they've gotten so far in college, how could they possibly change majors? When I'm going on 40 years old, and I'm thinking what it would be to have sunk costed such, such a little investment that you should barely miss. But at each stage of our lives, we end up feeling this way. I know that you know, 20 years from now, I'm going to look back and say, oh, that Anna that was giving that talk when she was 36, she had plenty of time and resources to switch routes, even though I think that I'm old and washed up and there's nowhere further for me to go. So we are doing a bad job leaving behind our past uncoverable resources and making the best decision from what should happen from here on out, uh, given the, the current resources and possibilities that we have. A kind of related time phenomenon, future discounting. We uh, are, are overly likely to value um, what stuff is like for us right now, um, thinking about maybe how hard it would be to tell our parents, say, that we are diverting. Uh, maybe they've invested resources in us or have a, a, a particular kind of hope for us. Um, and it might feel better right now to have a recognizable plan that gets um, the approbation of the people around you. But of course, we're doing a really bad job thinking about all of that utility out there, not to be able to put in the time and resources now to really secure that uh, future utility. Um, so, you know, you might think that this strategy is a little bit cheesy, but even if it is, I have found it remarkably effective for me. So, you know, we read in the, the business literature that, you know, when a company starts doing, doing badly, a thing that often happens is that they bring in a new CEO who isn't plagued by having to make it the case that you prove to yourself that uh, the plans that you made for, for the company, which really don't seem to be turning out uh, very well, that CEO, of course, wants to turn them around and prove that they really were good ideas when, you know, probably you should just take that evidence uh, change paths, bid farewell to the stuff that happened in the past. Um, but we actually have the opportunity, of course, to become our own new CEO, to come onto the scene, to say, hey, fresh eyes, um, knowing everything I know about myself, um, if I were in my most rational guise, of course, you know, we all have different selves. Um, I've got, I've got a, a a version of Anna that's really excited to come to this conference and meet new people um, and get some ideas. I've also got one that's totally terrified to do that and that walks into this crowd and forgets how to be a person. And uh, actually taking the step of thinking, hey, what if you took the opportunity to select the most reasonable, the most rational Anna that idealized from above endorses? enact that one. And I think that this actually can be a kind of helpful strategy uh, to get ourselves to stop really feeling like we're in the grips of those uh, system one-y, uh, plagued by uh, self-cost, uh, sunk costy kind of worries, and just make ourselves 
think about what's reasonable and choose to be the max rational uh, self and defer to her. So ask yourself whether you ever engage in the kind of thinking, I mean, surely we do it sometimes. We're thinking about like what restaurant to go to. Maybe we do a quick list of pros and cons. We say, oh, that one's expensive. Um, this one's closer, but that one is more delicious. And it's kind of seeming like you've just got like bucket categorizations and uh, it might feel like expensive or not so, um, delicious or not so. Um, and these are not careful degreed um, representations at all. Uh, they're really just kind of on or off, um, yes or no kinds of representations. And I think that this can happen a lot when we are making choices about uh, what kind of job or opportunity per to pursue. So maybe, maybe you have a kind of mental schema that goes something like, mm, I think I'd like to have a, like a, a, a job where I do good, a high impact job. What are those kinds of jobs? Maybe you think, teacher, yes. Human rights lawyer, yes. Somebody who works at an animal shelter, yes. Banker, no. Uh, and so, of course, you're just giving these kind of binary, um, yes, this checks the box of being um, an impact job. Now think about the other kinds of considerations you might have when you're thinking about, you know, what sort of opportunity to pursue. Maybe you're thinking about, um, you know, how long the commute is, what the salary is like. Note that for those factors, you might be thinking about a difference in like 10 miles for the commute, you might be thinking about a difference in salary that's like 60K versus 80K. Note what that range is and compare it to what's going on in the impact category. So it's thought that when we really break down into the various components that uh, affect how much impact we end up having, the size of uh, the, the problem that we're working on, um, how many other people are working on it, uh, how tractable uh, the, the solutions that we're pursuing are. The range of potential impact is actually staggering. So depending on what kind of problem we work on, it's estimated that, um, that the, the scale of comparison of how much impact we have, it might look like you could have a thousand times the impact if you just choose this problem versus the other. So if what you're doing is just sort of going down a list, being like um, commute, salary, Impact. Um, note that the scale on which you want to represent impact is going to be far, far, far bigger. And so you're probably going to want to not, not be in that uh, quick binary thinking um, scheme, but rather doing a, a more finer grain de degreed uh, representation. So kind of relatedly, um, experimentally, probably most of us know it's been demonstrated that we are shockingly blind to scope of values. So people uh, have been shown to be willing to pay the same amount of money to say, save, uh, say, 40 people as 400 people. Um, uh, not same, but in some ways related phenomena. We're often more taken by the proportion of a problem that we can fix than by the absolute amount of good that we can do. So people might tend to be willing to pay more for an intervention that would save 90% of a group of 100 than, say, 50% of a group of 300. 
of course, being blind to the fact that they'd be paying more to save 90 than 150. So it looks like our system ones are just more interested in something like cleaning up the scene, prick, uh, fixing the problem that we see in front of us, and less sensitive to the uh, absolute amount of value uh, of an outcome. All right, so what's the fix? We want ourselves to actually take a stab at calculating the expected value of the, the kinds of options that we're pursuing. And of course, this is tricky. There's gonna be tons of uncertainty involved. We probably shouldn't ever be very confident that we are uh, getting a, a very precisely accurate answer. But the process of doing it is, I think, one that is extremely helpful. It's gonna get us to actually tune into um, some of these very facts that we're often blind to. So, you know, there are going to be problems that we hear about all the time. Um, you know, compare, uh, think about how often we hear about breast cancer, um, you know, affecting 600,000 per year. Compare that to something like, also a problem that affects primarily women, um, cooking indoors with biofuels, affecting four million people per year. Or, or think about, you know, we live, um, uh, a lot of us live in America, um, where smoking just really isn't uh, much of a problem on our minds for most of us. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've mainly gotten to the point where the people around us are not smoking very much. But it's an enormous global problem, one that is uh, killing roughly 7 million people per year. Contrast how much you hear about that, something like um, natural disasters, which take 45,000 lives per year. And so when we are forced to um, actually calculate these things, we have to tune into the rele relevant facts. Um, sometimes what's gonna happen is we're just gonna um, expose the giant swaths of information that we don't know that would be uh, required for us to make uh, a pretty good guess. So we do want to get ourselves to actually try doing those things. And if you haven't calculated expected value before, um, it's simple. We're just going to be uh, estimating the likelihood that um, an option that we are considering uh, can actually obtain. And we're going to combine, you know, multiply um, that likelihood with uh, the value of that outcome actually obtaining. Um, so simple kind of uh, example here. You know, maybe you are thinking about whether to, uh, to go for venture A or venture B, and you're thinking, okay, there are two ways uh, the world could turn out um, when I uh, elect venture A. I think that there's a 60% chance um, that the end result is that two people are saved. Uh, there's a 40% chance that one of them ends up dead with this intervention. On venture B, it's a 50% uh, chance status quo, nothing changes. A 50% chance that one person ends up being saved. So, you know, we're drawing a line down the middle between venture A, venture B, combining the likelihoods and values of both of those. So when I point six times two, subtract point four, uh, I end up with, on average, I should expect that the value of venture A is 0.8 lives saved. 
on average, I should expect that the value of venture B is 0.5 lives saved. All right, so a, a couple different flavors of ideas that I also want us to consider. I'm going to think about some ways in which I actually think we can be kind of unclear about how we represent what our values are. Uh, and then, you know, thinking about whose judgment of those values we tend to care about, you know, whether some of those should actually matter a whole lot less to us, whether there are some uh, that maybe should matter more. So think about the structure that goals or plans often have for you. You know, maybe you set yourself a certain kind of goal and it's, you know, lit up as this thing that you're shooting for. And of course, you're going to have, um, uh, uh, you're going to have nodes that are subplans, right? Your goal is to, say, become a doctor. How are you going to get there? Well, you got to go to med school. Uh, to go to med school, you got to take the MCAT. So I think it's nice to kind of have in mind some sort of distinction between something like uh, instrumental and terminal values. So if your plan is kind of represented in your head something like this, it can look like that thing at the top, become a doctor, is a terminal value. What do I mean by terminal value? Well, something whose uh, end you are really valuing in and of itself. Contrast that to an instrumental value. Um, well, I don't value um, going to the dentist in and of itself. I value it because it's going to make my teeth healthy. Having healthy teeth is going to be a thing that, in general, elevates my well-being. If it weren't the case that going to the dentist, um, uh, if it were not linked to increasing my well-being, I sure as hell would not go to the dentist anymore. So I want to be thinking about uh, the value structure of the kinds of plans that we have, because I think it can come to be that you really get something stuck in your head as a terminal value, but you're failing to recognize that, you know, that endpoint that you're shooting for very likely is not actually a terminal value for you. Why did you want to be a doctor in the first place? Well, you valued having a meaningful, higher impact kind of job, right? And so that's going to help us step back from, from um, uh, the initial endpoint and recognize that we've got more work to do when we get there, even if it took us a long time and we were working really hard on it. Um, that, you know, if it turns out that there is something underneath there, which there probably is for most of us, and we don't really think that that goal is actually realizing it, um, recognize that those, those things, you know, that thing has now become a subplan. Um, you know, if it turns out that becoming a doctor is not a good goal, the things underneath it are useless. So uh, also be sensitive to the sort of guise of a goal. So if you just think, oh, it's becoming a doctor, you might not be sensitive to the fact that there are lots of ways of doing that thing, some of which might um, realize the actual terminal value, some of which wouldn't. You know, maybe you end up as a cosmetic dermatologist and um, you are sort of uh, sensing but shying away from the fact that maybe it doesn't feel all, all uh, it was cracked up to be in your mind. Make sense of what your terminal values are. Um, be okay editing those roots. Another kind of side point that I think it's good to think about 
Um, I think sometimes we can get into the mindset where, you know, each of these, these things along the way, their work, their accomplishments, their things that we show for our efforts, but we want to have the end goal in mind. And uh, if it turns out that there is a very different route and actually one much easier that we could take to realize that endpoint, we should do that instead. You know, if it turns out that actually, um, uh, you know, you thought that you were going to go to medical school, you have a background in computer science, but you kind of want to work on bioinformatics, and there's a route that doesn't require med school, that on its own doesn't have, that instrumental value doesn't have any of its own value if it's not tied in to the thing at, uh, at the top that you really do value. All right, so we, we want to think a little bit more carefully about what our values are. We want to think um, about why we find them valuable. So, you know, one thing that I find myself prone to doing, I think um, probably a lot of us have something like um, a uh, religious holdover, uh, maybe the kind of idea that there's going to be some final judgment day uh, uh, and we need to have like a clear recognizable thing to show for ourselves. And even when we're making those kinds of um, evaluations, somehow we still want to represent it as the clearly recognizable default roles like having become a doctor, um, as if God um, uh, would care about like the normal categorizational system or something. Um, but maybe it just turns out that deep down you just really feel like you've got to have something recognizable to show to, you know, your friends who think a little bit differently than you. I just want to say that um, I think we should rethink that. Uh, I think we have to take really, really seriously, you know, diagnose uh, whose judgment matters to us and shed it. Um, uh, really work to distance ourselves uh, from it if we can. You know, one good strategy is to really work to seek out like-minded company. You know, if uh, you are considering a partnership with somebody who doesn't have really central goals like this, it might be a deal breaker. So I think it's really valuable to just get yourself to uh, a spot where you can recognize and enjoy the companionship of, uh, you know, people who are orienting their lives similarly. So what I want you to do is just look through two, three, and four. I know that that, um, uh, will probably take a little bit longer than what we have, and I do have a few more things that I want to say. Um, the thing that I would most like you to do is to do three, and I would like you to um, uh, talk about 3B together. So maybe um, just get where you can talk to at least um, one more person. Start with um, number three. Talk through you know, the EV calculation. Make sure you can uh, each do it. Um, and then I want you to talk about B together, and then if you have extra time, um, you can think through on your own two and four. They're sort of food for thought. All right, so have at it at number three. All right. All right, so shout at me. Um, which project, project one or project two, uh, has higher expected value? Cool, looks like by about 400. So 
video watchers for the recording. Um, uh, we, we calculated the expected value of two different projects. Um, and part B, can you think of any reason Marie's team, uh, they're choosing between one of these two projects, might want to choose the project that has lower expected value? Um, how might you try to change their minds? Izzy, would you talk to me about what you guys said about this one? consequence and that reputational consequence could have farther reaching negative effects into the future future such as like the inability to secure funding which then might absolutely get actually a lower expected value decision potentially right okay yeah so we're contrasting the first project's got a 10 percent chance of curing 16,000 second one's got a 0.05 percent chance of saving four million and yeah, a little bit lower expected value for the first one, but Izzy says uh, it is uh, significantly less risky to go with the first one that's got a little bit lower uh, expected value. Anybody come up with any other reasons why, you know, if you were on that team, you might feel yourself uh, really tempted to take that lower EV option? It basically says uh, the second one is 0.05 percent, mm -hmm. and it seems that like a rounding thing. Why no 0.047, and like just changing it to 0.04 makes them the same EV. So and uh, estimating with very low probabilities is way harder. Yeah, I mean I don't know. They've they've given me the probabilities here. I don't have any reason to trust one any less than the than the other. Uh, I see what you're saying. You're saying okay, they're very close to equal. Here's my bold claim. Um, I think that there's a, there's a very particular thing going on, especially in the realm of when we set out to do good. So, you know, imagine just um, uh, a kind of scenario where they really did have equal expected value. If you've got a pretty decent chance of saving some people versus a really far out chance of saving a lot, it's really tempting to think that we should go for the first one uh, because, um, you know, it feels sucky to end up not having, in fact, done any good. Whereas, you know, if we can feel a lot more confident that we will have done that good, um, that feels better, you know, regardless of the fact that it would be smaller. Um, but I'm a little bit worried about this way of thinking. Um, you know, it, it ties in to the fact that we are pretty risk averse. Um, but I also think that we might kind of get in this sort of mindset um, from uh, the way diminishing marginal utility works um, with uh, goods. So, uh, you know, if you think about the kind of case where you have the opportunity to get one million versus two million dollars, um, you know, you're going to notice that the way uh, psychology works is that $2 million um, is uh, not twice as good as uh, $1 million. Um, it's less than twice as good as $1 million because of the d diminishing marginal utility that uh, dollars have. But human lives do not work this way. Two million lives uh, saved is twice as good as one million lives saved. 
So I think that if you um, find yourself in a kind of scenario in which you have no reason not to trust the predictions that are made, be, be careful about the kind of uh, impulse that makes you feel like you really want to be the one who has done this thing. You should be guided by expected value. You should want, uh, as an endpoint, that more lives are saved. So I put this uh, with an even different terminal endpoint up. Uh, because I think sometimes uh, we can kind of get confused about what the thing is that we want. Uh, it'll feel like um, we want to have done this good thing, but in fact, not even that is the terminal value that we probably ought to be aiming for. We should be aiming for um, that a better world exists. And the better way to do that is to respect the expected value uh, calculations. And so this is a sort of way of making ourselves not relevantly special. It's a way of treating ourselves as a kind of cog in the machine. And you know, there are some ways of rethinking what our role is. So plenty of times in, um, uh, say, uh, the scientific world, in medical trials, whatever, what people are doing is um, they are pursuing a kind of um, trial intervention that they feel pretty confident isn't going to work. What is the work they're doing? They're ruling out something that doesn't need to be tried anymore. And we should be thinking of ourselves as doing the exact same kind of thing. If you have a kind of project that it's low probability, but the outcome would be um, really, really high value, uh, that's a kind of thing that is probably worth trying. Um, in addition, because you know, if you're getting funding from uh, something like uh, an EA uh, philanthropy grant or something, there's kind of the discretion there where you are not um, uh, subject to uh, stakeholder interests. You're not a government entity um, that is going to have to show a certain kind of track record or something. So this kind of mentality where we sort of take ourselves and what we have done out of the picture um, to just really calculate expected impact um, and work towards that, feeling good that uh, we're acting as a kind of cog in the system, I do think that that is a better uh, mentality to have. So thinking about the kinds of things after we evaluate our options um, that make us unlikely to act on those options. We are, as we know, incredibly risk averse. Um, I think that for the most part, we're too risk averse. You're gonna have to think about your own individual situation to know whether this is true. Some of us really don't have the luxury of having backup plans. But for what it's worth, I think a lot of us, especially as we start uh, getting established, are really uh, under, um, we're really over uh, estimating how bad it would be um, for the ventures that we might try to fail. So think about what your plan B is. You know, take seriously uh, the thought about, if you can, sleeping in your parents' basement for a while while you do a lot of uh, hard work to figure out you know, what you should do. Um, you're worried about moving countries to uh, take on a really uh, exciting high impact role, but you know, what if you uh, fail and then you're stuck in this country and you've um, used up some of your savings? Probably, worst case scenario, is a whole lot more livable than we think it is. Um, lucky, privileged people that we mostly are. 
Um, and also just thinking about what, uh, what humans are like, what cultural evolution has done to us such that we innately um, are incredibly unlikely to innovate. You know, what kept us alive uh, and kept us safe was largely, uh, you know, being born with the kinds of instincts to do what worked for the people, uh, generations above us who survived. And so we're really born with a kind of um, instinct where we are not going to question assumptions around us. Most of us are not going to try to do things very differently than the ways that are uh, handed to us. So just making ourselves cognizant of um, these very static impulses, I think it's really familiar to have the kind of thought, certainly it is for me, um, that there's a certain kind of person, um, you know, the go-getter, who is the innovator, and they're going to be the ones that just happen to be that way, that think up these uh, new plans and try them. It is us. It's all of us. We just have to try doing it. And so the, the most annoying advice that turns out weirdly, at least for me, to be good advice, have you tried trying? <laughs> In my case, unfortunately, the answer is usually no, no, actually, I have not tried trying. Um, so yeah, uh, don't, over, don't overestimate the badness of plan B. Try trying to uh, go after some of those wilder uh, opportunities. Um, we got to go out there, give it all we got. No one is judging us scoldily. We don't really have anything to be afraid of. There isn't anything that we really need to feel guilty about. There's just um, an incredible world out there with a bunch of valuable people and a whole bunch of future valuable people. We've got tremendous power to impact them if we think and try really hard. And I think we should think of that as wildly exciting. So uh, I'm going to stick around. Really happy to take uh, questions about anything, any of this stuff, anything about rationality. Talk to me about what should be in a new approach to applied ethics. Thanks, guys, for showing up.